now working our way through Joshua. And through the first 12 chapters of Joshua, it is really just an account of the Lord and how he just mightily, miraculously used Israel to defeat the armies here in the Promised Land that they've been waiting 40 years to go into. So the first 12 chapters are really the military campaign of that. From chapters 13 on, it really spans possibly up to about 20 years or so. The first 12 chapters only go about 5 to 7 years. The next chapters here from 13 to the end of the book really go about another 20, maybe 30 years. At this point here in Joshua 24, Joshua himself is very old, possibly over 100 years old. We know he dies at the age of 110, and it looks like this is at the end of his life. They're done allotting the land to the 12 tribes, so they all have their allotment. He's kind of giving his final speech, if you will, of what the Lord has laid on his heart. And it's a recap of what God has done over the previous centuries, and also a reminder to them of how they're supposed to go. The key verse is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible is Joshua 24, 15. And if it seems evil to you this day to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of which your fathers served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're going to get to tonight is that verse. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to finish with what does it look like for a household to serve God. But before we get to that, Jump back to verse 1. If you weren't with us last week, chapter 23 is Joshua kind of giving a speech to the leadership of Israel, reminding them, and the key thing he's reminding them is God did everything. You didn't defeat Ai. You didn't defeat Jericho. You didn't drive out the kings. God did everything. God kept all of his promises. What an arrogant, prideful place for us to get to when we think we have achieved any success Be it success at home, success spiritually, success at work. And we think it's something to do with us. No, it's but by the grace of God. So Joshua reminds the leadership in Joshua 23, it's the Lord and the Lord alone. And he reminds them, cling to the word of God. Cling to God here. This is his final speech. He sees the end coming. He's just begging them, if you will, stay close to God. And that hasn't changed thousands of years later. Now in Joshua 24, he brings the entire nation together. And he reminds them some of the same things. Verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. So he has the nation together here. And he gives the final speech that the Lord has given him. Please remember Joshua at this time is probably over 100 years old. He's one of the few people left that actually was in Egypt, saw the plagues, saw the parting of the Red Sea. He was Moses' right-hand man. If you weren't with us months ago when we started Joshua, Joshua had such a role being Moses' assistant, seeing so much. This man had, had 100 years here of seeing God at work. And these are his final thoughts. Joshua said to all the people, verse 2, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in the old times, and they served other gods. He goes back to the beginning, back to when God called Abraham. And he says, this is what the Lord wants me to remind you of. The generations that followed you, Abraham, but even before Abraham, Terah, his dad, They lived on the other side of the river, and you're going to see that reference a lot tonight. That's to the Euphrates River. And he reminds them right from the beginning in verse 2, they served other gods. They weren't these God-fearing people. They were idol worshipers. Because Joshua knows through the Lord that this is going to be an issue for Israel for the next thousand years, this idea of idol worshiping. Now, we don't struggle with that today like they did back then. They literally had idols. 
literal hand-carved made idols, be it out of wood, be it out of stone, be it out of gold. They would set them up in the house. They would build temples to them. They literally had the idols. We don't do that as much today. Every now and then you run into some religions where they have a special pendant, a special statue, something like that, and they almost treat it like an idol. And maybe a special necklace that they have for prayers, etc. Most of the idols we have today do not have a statue form to them. They come in the form of money, time, lust, pride. And those are all idols. Anything that gets between you and the Lord is an idol. Anything that you give more attention to is going to be an idol. And you can make almost anything into an idol. Overtime at work can become an idol because you like the bigger paycheck. Physical exercise can become an idol because you devote more time to that than you do to the Lord. Family can become an idol. So a lot of times you see people worship at the altar of family. The only thing that matters is family, and they almost forget that they're supposed to serve the Lord God first. I just read the other day in the Gospels where Jesus said, you're supposed to love me more than you love your wife and your kids. So we've got to be careful of these idols that have creeped into us today here. But God says, he reminds them, they served other gods. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, the Euphrates, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Please note I. Fourteen times in this chapter you're going to see I. This is God speaking. And he's reminding Israel here as they now kind of celebrate the end of Joshua's life and of the promised land. Fourteen times God said, I did it. This is not pride. This is not arrogance. When the Bible calls God a jealous God, you've heard me say this before, this is not like junior high jealousy that he can't handle his talking to someone else. He's jealous for us. And he's trying to remind Israel, I did this. You're going to be tempted, Israel, by false gods. Don't. I'm the one that parted the Red Sea. I'm the one that took down Jericho. I'm the one that loves you. You're going to be tempted to start thinking it was you, Israel. Nope, it's not you. It's me. If you keep God first, everything else falls into place. That's the key, isn't it? Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Have you ever thought about what would happen if we just really sought God first? Everything else would fall into place. So he reminds them 14 times, it's me. I did this. So, I gave him Isaac, verse 3. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Sierra to possess. Those became the group of Edom, if you see in the Bible. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelled in the wilderness a long time. He's just kind of going through reminding them. You're sitting here in comfort. Have you forgotten, though, what has happened? You're no longer now just pilgriming through the wilderness. You don't have to pick up your tent and move. You don't have to do this or that. You've got houses now. You've got buildings. You can dig a well and keep it. You can put a fence up for your livestock. You've reached a point, dare I say, of contentment and comfortability. And God says, I think you're going to forget me. That still happens today. I mean, we all know this. And I'll just use me as an example so that way you don't think I'm picking on you. When I'm not feeling good, I pray more. When I've worked up over a situation, I pray more. When I have a big decision coming, I seek the Lord more. I fast more. I'm in the Word more. When things are going good, I don't pray as much. I'm not in the Word as much. To be quite honest, I probably don't worship as much. 
It says in Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Because when I was afflicted, I sought the Lord. And, and that's truth, but that truth hurts. And sometimes it actually hurts physically. Because sometimes the affliction is physical. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's mental. But when we're afflicted, we go to God more. We just do. I, I use this example with my own kids. Is that I hate for my kids to get hurt. Hate for them to get hurt. But... When it's a little injury, nothing serious, and they're crying and they're upset and they run for me and they want me to pick them up and hold them, oh, good golly, I'm glad they got hurt. You know what I mean? It's that moment, I'm glad it happened. The Lord, when I run to him, I can go call him a ba, daddy, father, and I can go sit on his knee and I cling to him. But when the physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental pain goes away, I climb off his knee and I say, I'm good now, God, I'll talk to you later. Sometimes it's good for the affliction to happen. I just encourage you, Psalm 119, it was good for me to be afflicted. And he reminds them right here, you guys are comfortable, you're content, you're in safety. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. So he reminds them. He reminds them how when Egypt came, he put a darkness between them. If you're a note taker, Exodus 14, fun story. They're coming out of Egypt, and the Pharaoh's army is about to get them. Israel's stuck at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's there. God just sends darkness down. Just puts darkness between Pharaoh's army and Israel, so that way they can't find them. Verse 8, And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Please note repetition in verse 8. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them from before you. God says, guys, I did this all. You were an untrained army of slaves. And now you're the mightiest army in the world. Why? Because I I am the power behind you. Verse 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Verse 10. That's from Numbers. Numbers 22. That wasn't necessarily a military threat. If you remember the story of Balaam, what happened is the king of Moab comes and says this. I can't defeat these people. I can't defeat them on the battlefield. They're too powerful. God's with them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to curse them spiritually. So he hires Balaam to be the prophet to curse them. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, Balaam just starts blessing them. And so the king of Moab just gets angrier and angrier, saying, I'm paying you to curse them, and you just keep blessing them. God says right here, verse 10, I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. I delivered you out of physical threats. I delivered you out of spiritual threats. It's God. I called you. I delivered you. I empowered you. Verse 11, Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gerishites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. I know one pastor that just rounds it up and says he calls them the Parasites. I always like that. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings and the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Verse 12, I did it. And I know that's a repetitious thought. I did it. Why does he have to keep repeating it? Because all of us are going to struggle one time or another with thinking, we did it. We're going to start thinking we're irreplaceable. And I want to remind you, every single person is replaceable. Because it's the Holy Spirit that works in them, not the individual. 
Moses was irreplaceable until Joshua came aboard. Because Joshua then had the same spirit that Moses had. It's God that does the moving and the working. Always remember that. It's not an individual. It's the Lord. And God is constantly reminding them, it's me. So now, just real quick, and if you don't struggle with this, you can tune out for just about 30 seconds. But if you struggle with this, I just want to remind you tonight, any quote-unquote success you have is from God, not from your own ability or strength. Just remember that. And don't ever let that pride sneak in thinking, I have Earn this, I have done this, I deserve this. According to Romans 3, we deserve hell. And by God's grace and mercy, we don't have it. Now, I also like verse 12. I love these little things. Verse 12, I sent the hornet before you. Did you catch that? Now, it's not only there. It's in Exodus. It's in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to be honest with you, we don't know. Now, we know that later on in the Bible, he refers to the Assyrians as a bee. Bee that comes and stings. So there could be some symbolism that God is calling the hornet an army. But I sent the hornet before you to drive them out. See, it says in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when you study this out, God says, before you guys even get there, I've sent a hornet before you to weaken them. Some people then believe it represents Egypt. That's possible, because Egypt's army would come through and weaken them before the Jews came years later. Some people stop and say, hey, why couldn't it actually be a hornet? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Now, before you stop and you think, well, that just sounds strange. Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Okay? Balaam's donkey spoke. Don't don't forget those things. If God says, hey, the way I'm going to weaken this nation is to send hornets before, let him send hornets before. I just find verse 12 fascinating. There's not a clear, concise answer, but it's in Exodus, it's in Deuteronomy, and it's here. And those are fun little verses to chew on, so just chew on that a little bit. So the first 12 verses is God basically reminding them, I did it. I empowered you. I delivered you. I called you. I did it. This is not some egotistical, don't forget about me. It is a reminder to say, never let you think it was you. Because it was the Lord that has done all of this. Now, before we get to the next point, Joshua is now going to take this and say, since we know this, what are we going to do with this information? But before we get to that, anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here? The first 12 verses before we move on to verse 13. All right, we're good? Okay. So now that we know this, verse 13, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Wow. Israel, I did it all. I just let that sink in. I'm standing up here speaking with breath I did not give my lungs. My heart is pumping with a heart that I did not take any care of. I don't make myself do this. The Lord does this. He holds our very breath in, our, in his hands. This is just a good reminder. And if you forget this, please remind yourself of Nebuchadnezzar back in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar one time was out walking in his garden. And as Nebuchadnezzar is walking into his garden, he looks up at his garden. He has this little thought in his mind where he stops and says, you've done good. You've done real good for yourself, Nebuchadnezzar. And at that point, the Lord speaks to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you did it. I did it. And since you forgot this for the next seven years, you're going to walk around on your hands and knees. You're going to eat grass and you're going to be crazy because you forgot Now, God's grace allowed that to happen because I firmly believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar up in heaven because the Lord got his attention. But just don't ever think it's you. 
And it's actually so freeing. When you realize it's not you, it's freeing. Because if it was you, then I have to fight to keep this stuff. If you have to work to gain it, you have to work to contain it. And I don't want to do that. It's the Lord. So God says, it was me. So now, see, now we see verse 14. Now, therefore, what's the result of realizing this? Fear the Lord. Now, we just talked about the fear of the Lord on Sunday. If you weren't with us, we're starting Proverbs in Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the most important verse. And we did a whole teaching on what does it mean to fear God. And it doesn't mean tremble like you're scared of them. It's an awe, a healthy respect, but it's a fear. And this is not only in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in the entire Bible that we're supposed to be God-fearing people. And one of the greatest compliments you can give an individual is to say, that person fears the Lord. So he starts out by saying, now, what am I supposed to do with this information? Fear the Lord. And as I fear the Lord, verse 14, serve him. Look how simple this is. I am so moved by what God has done in my life. My first reaction is to fear him. My next reaction is to serve him. But how do I serve him, verse 14? Serve him in sincerity and in truth. Sincerity and truth. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of times we serve the Lord and it's not in sincerity. We serve the Lord because we were asked to by some human individual. We serve the Lord because you're tired of hearing them announce they need a second and third grade teacher every Sunday. And you feel guilty and you probably just should. You serve the Lord because they just asked you and the pastor called you specifically. And you're like, I probably should. And then when the pastor comes up and says, I really appreciate you serving, you put the smile and say, oh, whatever I can do for the Lord. And then your heart, you're thinking, never ask me again. I'm going to change my number. So that's what we do. That's what's so amazing about sincere servants is when you see a sincere servant, you stop and say, this person isn't doing it because they were asked. They weren't doing it because they were pushed into it. It's not because the pastor asked them or the children's ministry head or because there's a need. This person stops and says, if this is the way I can further the kingdom, I'm willing to do it. That's a servant. That's sincerity. And how do you serve them? Serve them in sincerity and in truth. It is so important to find truth with it. Because I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of religions in this world are serving their version of a God. And they're serving their version of a God with a lot of sincerity. But there's no truth. You're going to have people show up at your door sometime and knock on your door and want to talk to you. They are in some way sincerely serving a false God. There's just no truth. If you go look at a lot of different world religions, be it the Hindus, be it the Buddhists, be it the Muslims, there's sincerity. But there's no truth. I've shared this example with you before that we have some friends that are of a different religion that we've been really just trying to witness to them and love them. And they were talking one time and we started talking about fasting. And the fasting that we do as believers to grow and go deeper in Jesus Christ and to know his will. And they're fasting that is a religious obligation. They're fasting sincerely. There's no truth. And I just think once they get saved, they're going to think back to all the meals they missed. All the good food. Serve him in sincerity and also serve him in truth. Truth. What are you supposed to do then? Verse 14, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Put the gods away. Now, once again, I, I've been in your, some of your houses. You don't have little statues up on your altar, so you don't. I don't think you guys have made little altars in your backyard. But I'm just asking you, because I know in my heart I got some idols I'm battling, and I bet you got some idols in your battling as well, too. 
And maybe it's the idol of finances, it's the idol of time, it's the idol of lust, it's the idol of pride. I don't know what it is. But it's time for that idol to die. And it's time for us in verse 14 to say, I'm going to serve. Now we finally get to verse 15. See, now we understand what Joshua is trying to say at the end of 15. But it's for me and my house will serve the Lord. Joshua is looking back over a hundred years of experience. And he says, I saw what we went through in Egypt. I was a slave. I saw the Red Sea. I was on the mountain when he received the law. I saw the golden calf. I saw Jericho fall. I saw Ai fall. I saw the Jordan being crossed. I saw the Red Sea being crossed. I have seen it all. And I have only come to this conclusion. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's an amazing conclusion to come to. Because he has now seen it. And this is what he says. This is what it is. And he says, you choose... And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, some of your translations don't say evil. If it seems undesirable, if it seems like you refuse to, did you catch verse 15? You got the free will. God's not going to make you serve Him. You choose. That, that's one of the hard parts about Christianity, is in some ways, as a pastor, you almost want it to be more legalistic. I'm sorry, you have to. You, you have to pray more. You have to read more. You have to fast more. And you have to serve more. And you have to worship this way. And the Bible says, no, you don't have to do any of those things. You choose to. And God says, I would hope that you love me enough and you fear me enough to choose to be in the word more, to be in prayer more, to be in service more, to be in worship more. But God says, I'm not going to force you to do it. Because you know what forced worship looks like? Forced Bible reading, forced prayer, forced service. That's not insincerity and truth. Imagine you were in an arranged marriage. And it was forced. And that seems foreign to us. But I was talking to you too about those friends that we have. And uh, my wife was talking to the wife of one of the other guys. And they were just trading wedding stories. And so one guy looked at me and goes, so did you marry for love? I said, what do you mean marry for love? Was it love? I said, yeah. And then I realized he was asking if it was arranged marriage. Because in that culture, that's very common. You have an arranged marriage from a big... So did you marry for love? Now, if I would have known that's what he was saying, I would have said, no, help me. No. <laughs> Blink twice for save me. You know what I mean? That would have just been funny to see what he would have done. But, but can you imagine if it was forced? I mean, seriously, just think about it. It sounds so silly, but that's, that's what some religions are. I love my boys so much that I am forced to play with them one hour a day. I love my boys so much I am forced to take them to the park twice a month. I am forced to make sure I tell Dawn I love her three times a day. She looks pretty twice a day. And I need to hold her hand five minutes a day. That's not love. That's not sincerity. That's not truth. That's forced. And you know and I know there's a lot of world religions out there that that's what they do. And they're very religious. But there's no sincerity or truth. Verse 15, Joshua says, listen, we're not going to make you do this. It's a free will choice. Do you want to serve the God? Do you want to serve God or not? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So now the rest of the chapter changes because he's asking Israel, are you going to do it? And we'll see their response. But before we get to that, any quick questions, comments over anything here thus far before we get going? All right, let's see what happens. Verse 16, so the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. 
For the Lord our God is he who brought us us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. That's a great testimony. 16 through 18. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Verse 17, we saw what God did. Verse 18, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. I mean, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear, I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve God. Amen. Did they mean it? I don't know. Joshua's a smart ruler. You're going to see her in a little bit. He questions them. I was at a marriage conference years ago. And at the end of the conference, they, they kind of called us men out. And they said, which of you men are willing now, after you've heard all these teachings, whatever, which of you men are going to go home and you're going to lead your family in Jesus Christ? And it was just, yeah, we're going to do that. And if you're going to do this, stand up. So there's a couple guys that stand up immediately. And then the guy goes, that's all, none of you else. And then, now there's a few more. I want to see every man standing up. And eventually, guys, I'll be grudging. Okay, fine, I'll lead my life. You know, I mean, lead my wife, I'll lead my family. I don't know if they meant it or not, but it became this force to everybody stand. Joshua here says, verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and all your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, and he will turn and do you harm and consume you, After he has done you good. Now, verses 19 and 20, you would think that's not really what you're supposed to say. I mean, imagine doing an altar call. And somebody comes forward. And I said, James, I heard what you said. I want to be saved from hell. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be right with Jesus Christ. And my response would be, no, you don't. Just leave. You don't want Jesus. You don't want anything to do with this. This is a fascinating response from Joshua where he looks at the people and says, verse 19, you can't do it, guys. God is so holy, and you're not. He's a jealous God, please remember. Not junior high jealous. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you to have any idols because he knows it's going to hurt you. Verse 20, I'm telling you right now, if you forsake the Lord, there's going to be discipline and punishment coming. Now, this should not seem odd to us, because guess what? Jesus Christ did the exact same thing. Can you go with me to Luke 9, please? Luke 9. This is an ongoing theme in the Bible. Somebody wants to go deeper, and the spiritual person looks at him and says, No, you don't. Why? Because you're going to Luke 9. If you can be talked out of serving God, then your heart really wasn't in it in the beginning. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon. I believe it was. I have the quote up in my office, and I should have brought it out with me tonight. Charles Spurgeon that said that any time somebody came to him and said, I want to be in the ministry, he would do everything he can to talk them out of it. And he came to the conclusion, if I can talk them out of the calling of God, then they weren't called by God. Because if you're called by God, you're not going to let a man talk you out of it. What's an example of that? Elijah and Elisha. Remember when Elijah was getting ready to be taken up to heaven and Elisha kept following him? And Elijah kept turning around at Elijah. Elijah kept turning around at Elisha and said, go home. Elisha wouldn't do it. Little, go home. Why? Because Elijah knew if Elisha would turn around, he didn't have the heart. 
Jesus does the same thing, Luke 9, 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Who doesn't want to hear that? Whatever you want of me, Lord, wherever you call me, I am willing to go. I think of that song we sing, Oceans, you know, uh, let me follow you without borders. There's no stopping to what you've called me. Jesus says in 58, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like Jesus is telling him, really, wherever? Wherever? You're willing to let go of your comforts of home? You're willing to let go of your safe little life? Because I don't even have a place to lay my head. Next guy, verse 59, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. See, now there's the next thing. There's the excuse. Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Follow me. I will, I will, God. I will really follow you. But I got some responsibilities to take care of first. And once I'm done with these responsibilities, I'll take care of it. And before you think in 59, that seems really crass. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That, it's not saying that his father died. What he's saying is... Let me finish my responsibilities with my father and then I'll come serve you. Remember from a Jewish perspective, when you died, you're buried that day. They did not embalm and you were buried that day. So if it really was my dad just died, hey, give me a couple hours to bury him and I'll be back with you. No, he's implying that I can't follow you, God. I have too many responsibilities. I, I've heard that all the time. I've been out here for 20 years, and there's always like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to get serious. I'm really going to get serious here. I'm in a really big season of overtime. Um, you know, hey, i got this remodel project we're doing. Hey, the kids are really busy with this right now. But once this season's over, and I appreciate their heart, I really do. But the truth is, there's always going to be something else that pops up. Next one, 60. Jesus said to him, let the dead, excuse me. I mean, first go and bury my father, 60. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Get your eternal focus right. 61, another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first and go and bid them farewell or at my house. Lord, I'll follow you, but I got some relationships here. I got some people that I really like. Let me say goodbye to them. Let me, let me break off from the world a little bit more. 62, Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't move forward and look back at the same time. As I've used this example many times before, when my dad was teaching me growing up as a kid, be it either mowing wheat stubble or chopping a field or getting out there and working ground, you'd get in the tractor and I remember dad telling me, he goes, pick an object in the distance. And then you just keep your eye on that telephone pole. Because if you keep looking back, you, you just you look back, you sway just a little bit. Just a little bit. And what he's saying here in verse 60 is, oh, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. I wonder what my friends are doing on Friday night. I'm just going to text them and see how they're doing. You know, Lord, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. And I realize that that sin has brought me down, be it, be it the bar, be it the movies, whatever. I'm just going to go to the bar and I'm going to get myself a, a Coke. And what happens is we start going back a little bit. Now, what's built on this, because Jesus goes even deeper. Go with me now to Luke 14, please. Luke 14. Jesus was not good at PR. Because in Luke 14, verse 25, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, I mean, it's, it's, he has a huge following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, you've got to love me more than anybody else. 
That's a tough teaching. Because I love my wife. And I love my kids. And I love this place. But Jesus says your identity is in Christ, not in harvest. Your identity has to be in Jesus. You've got to put me first. And this is what happens sometimes as we do worship at the altar of family. We think we're doing a great job by doing this and that. And Jesus said, yeah, put me first. And everything else falls into place. Jump ahead to verse 33, same chapter. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is a pretty powerful teaching. Now that word hate in the Greek does not mean hate like we think of hate. What it literally means is that you have more love for Jesus than anybody else. So please don't take that teaching, go home and look at your wife and say, I hate you. That's not biblical. That's not what it's saying. But the love you have for Jesus is such a deep love that it almost looks like hate. The love you have for your spouse and your kids. Because you love Christ so deeply, so personally. So Joshua's response, back in Joshua 24 now, is really not different than the response of Elijah. And it's not different than the response of Jesus. For Jesus says, oh, you want to follow me? Are you willing to give everything up? Because if you're not willing to give everything up, don't follow me. Because he, Joshua is saying, do you really mean this, Israel? So what is their response? Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. They said, we are witnesses. Joshua said, I want to confirm, you really do mean this. I really do mean this. You really do mean this. Now therefore, he said, verse 23, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. So get rid of the false gods and incline your heart, depending on your translation. Yield your heart. Turn your heart. Because right now your heart is kind of going to those statues a little bit. Get your heart back on me. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. And it has heard all the words of the Lord which he has spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. He says, you really do mean this? We're going to make a covenant. Covenant is an important word. If you've ever been out here when I've done a wedding before, I talk about vows. I talk about covenants. Because I talk about how marriage vows are not just mere words that are repeated with an I do. It carries more weight when you really study this out. We, we got this little phrase that we do in the Irvin house, and it's, and it's I promise. We can say crazy, wacky things. But if you really mean it, you've got to say I promise. And that means there's no joke, no nothing about it. That's just something that we've always done. That that means we stick to it because we have a promise that we're going to do it. We've also sometimes with the boys, they'll come up and they'll have these ideas that they want to do. Dad, if you do this, we will do this. You guys have been down that path before, right? So after a few years of hearing what they would do, and I do my end and my bargain first, and then they don't follow up their end of the bargain, they still seem to get the blessing while I'm left hanging, right? So you're going to think we're weird and that's okay. We have in our fridge covenants that our oldest, Elias, who's 13 now, he writes up, submits it to us, we approve. He goes around and gets all of his brothers to sign it, and we put it up on the fridge. As a visible reminder, this is what you guys have promised to do. 
This is what you guys have said to do. I think we live in a world in a society today where so often there is this, oh, Lord, I love you, and I'm going to go deeper, and I'm going to read more, and I'm going to pray more. And the next thing you know, the 10 minutes later, the emotion has passed. What I see here in Joshua, God kind of takes this as a big deal. And so Joshua says, if you guys really mean this, we're writing this out. This stone, this is a memorial stone. This is a covenant to remind us that is a witness of what you have promised to serve God with. Because we know God's not going to break his promise. See, the word covenant is a really interesting word in the Hebrew. It literally means to cut. And if you remember correctly, when God made the covenant with Abraham, they sacrificed animals, they cut them, and they walked through them. That's what they believed they used to do. They used to take an animal. If you'd make a business deal with somebody, make a covenant, you would take an animal, sacrifice the animal, cut it in half. Then you and the business partner, partner would literally walk through it, symbolically saying, if I break my part of this deal, may I be cut in half like this animal. It was that big a deal. Where nowadays, we say words and we don't mean them. We make promises we don't keep. So Joshua says, if you guys really do mean this, if you really do mean this, this is the deal. So they said, we're going to serve the Lord. So real quick, because i got one big point I want to make here in the last five minutes. Just finish this up. 29, now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. I love that phrase, the servant of the Lord. Wouldn't you like to be known as when you die, someone just says he was a servant of the Lord. They buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath. Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he has done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had brought from one of the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Elziar, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mounts of Ephraim. Now, you may look at 32 and 33 and say, what's the point of all that? God ties up loose ends. All the way back in Genesis 50, one of Joseph's final deathbed wishes was, take my bones with you so I could be buried in the promised land. So now here, what, uh, hundreds, years late, hundreds of years later, they still have the bones of Joseph and they bury him in the promised land. Isn't that neat? God, God doesn't leave things forgotten. He keeps all of his promises, as we talked about last week. But this is what I want to finish with. And this is actually a quick finish. Go back with me to 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a great statement. What's it mean to serve the Lord? What does that really, really look like? That is actually a harder thing to teach on than what it sounds Because what does it mean when a household serves the Lord? I prayed a lot on this, read a lot of verses, looked at my own life, successes we have had in the Lord, failures we have had in the flesh. And I just came up with just five quick things I just want to share with you in our final minutes here of what it looks like to serve the Lord. And if you're a note taker, you can write it down. i got some scriptures to share with you. First one, what does it mean to serve the Lord? Let's just go with what it says right there in verse 15. Is for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The idea of service. Joshua twenty four fifteen. a house that serves the Lord does that, it serves the Lord. It is looking for ways to serve people. It is looking for ways to help out the widows, to help out the orphans, to help out the neighbors, to love thy neighbor as thyself, to represent Jesus Christ in all their interactions. It seems like we live in a society today where we are Christians, and we put up the biggest fences we can to keep ourselves from community, and then how are we serving the Lord? 
We serve the Lord as a family. We serve the Lord as a church. We serve the Lord as individuals. Because when it says house here, I don't know what your house is. Right now, my household is a household of nine. So that's nine are going to serve the Lord. Some of you may be a household of one. You may be a household, I don't know, of more than nine. You may be a household of four or five or two. I don't know what it is. But you're going to choose how your house is going to serve the Lord. And the first thing you're going to do is do what it says. You're going to serve. We are designed and created for the glory of God to get out there and do exactly what he says, is to serve. So I hope your house has a house of service. I'm actually going to go do things for you, Lord. Next one, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, we don't have time to turn there. I have to go through these quick. A house that serves the Lord is a house of his word. In Deuteronomy 6, it says that we're supposed to talk of God's word as we sit at the table, as we sit at bed, as we walk along the paths. A house that serves the Lord is a house that's in his word. I encourage you, if you have kids at home, one of the things that we do is before we eat a meal, we read a verse just to remind us of God's word. We just talk briefly about it. I encourage you, if you can, find the time, make the time, set aside the time. Family devotions. If you're by yourself, devotions with you. If it's just you and your spouse, devotions together. Be a house of his word. That's what Deuteronomy 6 tells us to do. Next one, Acts 10. Acts 10. Cornelius' house was a household that feared God. Is your household fear God? As we talked about Sunday, is there a fear of God when it comes to our decisions and our finances and our words and our actions? Where we stop and say, Lord, I, I fear you. Not out of this trembling, scared, but out of such an all respect for who you are. I want my house to serve you. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, God says he's asked for our house to be a house of prayer. Is your family a house of prayer? Is your household a house of prayer? Be it as an individual, be it as a couple, whatever. You know, one of the things that, you know, really has blessed us when we have big decisions coming up. For example, we had three decisions that we needed to make this summer. At the beginning of the summer, we go to the boys and say, hey, here's the three things we're praying about. Will you pray for wisdom with us? And we pray over those decisions as a family. Now, obviously, Dawn and I don't share every decision with the boys. But if they're involved with some of these decisions, we say, will you pray for wisdom with us? Let's train them from a young age to say, let's pray together for wisdom. And lastly, this one I'm going to have you go to. Can you go with me to Psalm 101? Here's our last passage for tonight, Psalm 101. Psalm 101. As you're going to Psalm 101, I just want to remind you of Psalm 127.1. Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord's the foundation of your house, it's all in vain. One of the key foundational points of serving the Lord is making sure the Lord's the foundation. Psalm 101, only eight verses, short little chapter, verse 1. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord, I will sing praises. The beauty of praise and worship. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize the importance of praise and worship in my daily devotion. I usually read a psalm every morning, and it says, Lord, I want to start out the day in praise. Verse 2, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. A perfect heart. Now, that doesn't mean you're sinless. It means a perfect heart, a complete heart in the Lord. My heart is all yours, Lord. So I I just want to ask you, and as I ask myself, am I behaving wisely in a perfect way, blameless? Am I walking within my house in a perfect heart? That I can say, Lord, I'm really trying through you 
to have this house be a house that serves the Lord. So what does it look like, according to Psalm 101, to have a perfect heart, a perfect house, a blameless house and heart? Verse 3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away or shall not cling to me. Set nothing wicked before the Lord, before your eyes. That means also worthless. Is there worthless, wicked things in your house? Time to get rid of them. Is there worthless, wicked things that come through your TV? Don't watch them. Is there worthless, wicked things that come through the radio? Don't listen to it. Is there worthless, wicked things that come out of your mouth? Don't say them. A perverse heart, verse 4, shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. The house that serves the Lord does not speak ill of people. Secretly slanders. How often do we do that in the closeness of our house behind bedroom doors? We can just say whatever we want about people. God says, I know it. Verse 5, proudness, arrogance. No, we don't want that. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Once again, perfect does not mean sinless, but it means your heart says, Lord, I want you. Verse 7, he who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies should not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. What does a house that serves the Lord look like according to Psalm 101? It's blameless. There's nothing they know of that needs to be changed. Doesn't mean they're perfect. But they say, Lord, if there was a sin in our house, we'd be dealing with it. There's nothing wicked or worthless set before their eyes. They hate lying. They hate perversity. They hate wickedness. They're not slandering people. They're not allowing their eyes to see things they shouldn't see. They're not working deceit, telling lies. They're a house that serves the Lord. So when Joshua says in Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. According to the Bible, that means it's a house that serves. It's a house that's of the word. It's a house that fears God. It's a house that's a house of prayer. Then Psalm 101, it's a house that's blameless in how they live and act. And that's what God is asking of us. And through his grace, mercy, and strength, he does it. Just like we read in Joshua 24, I don't have to do it. He does it. He's just saying, James, are you willing? And if I'm willing, I can work with that, he says. And do we have a heart that's willing to do it? So that finishes our study here in Joshua. And we're running out of time. It's after 8 o'clock. But any final questions, comments about anything here before we go ahead and close up about serving the Lord or just the final chapter here in Joshua? We're good? All right. Hey, would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to live it. We want to live it. Not just talk about it, but live it. Help us, Lord, in the name of Jesus, to truly live this out and do we say. Not in a legalistic have-to fashion, but in a want-to. That we choose this. We choose, as that verse says, to serve you. Help our houses to be blameless. Help our houses to be a house of prayer, a house of your word, a house of service and ministry to be pure. And Lord, if there's anything worthless or wicked in our house, in the name of Jesus, we want it to be gone. We say thank you in your name. Amen. Hey, you guys have a good week and God bless.